I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's a show where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. What did it mean to be an intelligent, artistically gifted young woman in 16th century Italy? If you were of childbearing age and from a powerful, wealthy family, it meant an arranged and advantageous marriage that you submitted to, whether you were ready or not. Parents and emissaries and secretaries and advisors had been working on these plans, we are told in Maggie O'Farrell's new novel, since the children's births. O'Farrell's novel takes us inside such a marriage. Lucrezia is 15. The Duke of Ferrara is in his mid-20s. He's desperate for an heir, and when no pregnancy ensues, Lucrezia fears for her life. The characters are drawn from history and poetry and an abiding interest in the lives of women through history. Maggie O'Farrell is the author of, among other novels, Hamnet, a book I've recommended at least a hundred times. Her new novel is titled The Marriage Portrait, and she joins us from Scotland. And welcome to the show. It's good to talk to you. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. Do you think it was even more aggrieving and more intolerable in these repressive societies of old, if you were a young woman and you were smart and aware and gifted because you were still going to be treated as property and as as an ornament? I think it must have been difficult, whoever you were, you know, whether I don't, I suspect that not many 13, 14 year old, 15 year olds are pleased to be married off to a man in their mid 20s, no matter how rich or erudite or sophisticated he might be. You have a daughter? who is what in her teens or younger i have two daughters i've got one age 10 and one age 13 13. so around the age of when this character that you're creating out of historical fact would have been preparing to be married how do you how do you understand what this meant to a child of that age to be headed for a future like this I think it must have been absolutely terrifying, actually, because I think a lot of what a marriage entailed, for reasons of religion and politeness, with a child that age. And that, I mean, I'm calling her a child because she she was a child when she got married. And you know, it's strange. Somebody recently asked me whether I had based the Lucrezia in my novel on my own daughters. Oh. Which, you know, my only answer to that was, strangely enough, I have other hopes and dreams for my girls <laughs> than very early marriage and then possible exoricide by from your husband. So, no, I mean, actually, I very deliberately steered my thoughts very consciously away from my daughters, obviously. But at the same time, it is, you know, I suppose, you know, it, it's a kind of balancing act because if you are writing about the 16th century, it's important not to impose too much of your uh, my modern sensibilities on the practices that went on then and but at the same time you know I mean <laughs> Lucrezia was married at 13 to Alfonso Duke wow. of Ferrara and then she was allowed to spend two years w- with her parents until she reached maturity um, and Alfonso went off and fought in France but at the age of 15 he came back to Florence and claimed her and brought her back to Ferrara so essentially her marriage started when she was 15 and, you know, and I know 15 then probably wasn't viewed as the same as 15 now. You know, the life expectancy was probably around 45, I think. But at the same time, you know, 15, mm. that's still really young. She's still a child with all this adult expectation and, you know, marriage and impending motherhood all heaped upon her head. So much expectation, so much pressure. I thought about that, that 
that 15 in that era, in that age, is different from the way we see 15 now. And yet brain development, Mm. you know, just the truth about biology and and brain chemistry is pretty Mm -hmm. inescapable. These Mm. were, in every sense of the word, children so unprepared for for what what they were encountering Mm. right absolutely i mean you know i think or equally i think a lot of expectation was heaped on the boy's Mm -hmm. head i mean lucrezia's father cosimo de medici he ascended to become duke the ruler of tuscany age 17 which in itself you know if you look at it you know i think yes it's important to realize that, that these were young girls who were being married off but at the same time it's important I found anyway during the book to think, well, actually, the boys also were part of this mm-hmm. system. Um, you know, they were also victims of the circumstance and the society they were they were born into, you know, because they were brought up to be rulers and soldiers and, um, you know, uh, lawyers, you know, politicians or whatever. But, and the girls of Lucrezia's class were expected to make politically advantageous marriages that were essentially just mergers between one ruling family and another. So we should be clear to listeners here that, you are talking about true figures from history. These Lucrezia, the Duke, mm-hmm. they truly lived. They've also been memorialized in a poem by Robert Browning. I'm I'm curious about where you encountered that poem for the first time. So I studied Robert Browning's dramatic monologues at university. I studied English literature and I um, studied them there. And they are really extraordinary because they are, each and every one of them, a, a, I mean, he borrowed the form from theatre, the, the, um, the theatrical soliloquy. And so every, every single one of his characters and every single one of these poems is an exploration into a certain mindset. And often the characters he dramatises are people under some kind of emotional stress. Mm. And his, the, the most famous is one called My Last Duchess, in which a, an Italian duke um, pulls back a curtain and uh, to, to reveal this portrait of his former wife. And he explains to the listener, who is, by the way, the representative of his future wife's family. And he explains to this uh, representative that he had his previous wife murdered, basically because she just annoyed him. Um, and that he's, so, <laughs> that he's so completely self-assured that what he did was right, that he's prepared to say this to his future fiancé's family and he says that nobody else draws back this curtain but I and she you know she she basically she she wasn't deferential enough to him she didn't treat him with enough respect and there's a very chilling line where it says I gave commands and all smiles stopped together which I think I think one of the most chilling Mm -hmm. understatements in English literature Mm -hmm. I found I went back to read the poem I found this Mm. there's this icy regard this kind of cold really cold possessiveness in Browning's tone, mm. which, of course, he's yeah. Browning's <clears throat> tone is the, the tone, the voice of, of the Duke. I, I, so yeah. I'm interested in how you thought about capturing that for the character of the Duke in the novel. And whether, by the way, whether you agree with that, with how I've characterized the, the tone of the poem, how would you characterize it? I think he is incredibly sophisticated and very, very clever Mm. and is, but also at the same time, completely self-assured. He's completely convinced of his own moral Mm -hmm. rectitude in in the universe in which he inhabits. And he's convinced that nobody could ever question his actions. Um, I think one of my favourite bits of the poem is at the end, he he says to the person, his listener, he says, oh, wait a minute, you know, 
we'll both go down the stairs together. And I just love the idea that the listener is, is backing away as fast as he possibly can. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> he doesn't want to stay in the room, which I can really understand. But I think my main urge, you know, when I start, when I, I was rereading those poems, um, just actually it was in February of 2020, just before mm-hmm. the pandemic struck. And um, <clears throat> and I, I was just wondering whether or not this 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 poem, the one of the most famous ones that Browning wrote, uh, was based on real people because he did write some of his dramatic monologues about real people. And so I I just did a bit of research and I discovered that yes, that the the, the Duke is the Duke of Ferrara, Alfonso, and his wife was the very young uh, Lucrezia de Medici. And I suppose my urge really was that I wanted to pull back that curtain that the Duke had hidden her mm-hmm. behind and just say to her. What's your story? What do you, you know, if you could speak, what would you say? What would your story be? Because I think Alfonso, you know, I mean, it was a complicated thing at the beginning. As I started writing the book, I I wanted to be quite even-handed with Alfonso because I thought, you know, there are some historians who say that he poisoned her and murdered her. And there are some who say actually she died of natural causes. So I felt that I needed to be, um, you know, I needed to give him the benefit of the doubt. I didn't want to convict an innocent man of something. But there were things about him that I discovered during my research, which... I, one of which is in the novel where he, Alfonso, in order, you know, he, he, he has just become Duke and it's very important that he shows everybody that he's up to the job, um, that he can show his own court, prove to them that he's the ruthless and a strong ruler and he needs to prove it to his province and also any potential enemies outside the province who may be watching him. And one of the things he does it, when he discovers that his sister is having an affair with the head of the guards in his castello, he orders the man to be strangled and he forces his sister to walk. This really happened, I wondered. Oh my yeah, gosh. no, that's absolute historical documented fact. I think he was possibly quite proud of it because it, you know, it, it, it sends a message, doesn't it, to people, you know, here is a man who will not tolerate anything that he perceives as an insult to the dignity of his family and his court and his own rule. Um, and I just felt when I read that, I had this strong sense. I thought, well, you know, if he didn't kill her, he was certainly capable mm. of it. You know, that this is the act of an extremely disturbed mind, you know, of, of, a, of a sort of a mind in almost psychosis. And so I did feel at that point, I thought, Alfonso, I'm coming for you. <laughs> it, you know, it's a good point, too, about the way that this head of the guards died. There were many, many different methods that the Duke could have chosen to do away with this guy because exactly. of the, the insult mm. to the dignity of the family. But he wanted yeah. that. He wanted an up-close-and-personal death with her watching. Yeah, forcing his sister to watch. I mean, the man, you know, the man she was clearly very in love with. It's, uh, it's quite something. You know, what you said about his tone in the poem, too, complete confidence. There's also, like, this sensibility of, I'm bulletproof, nobody. This is how powerful I am, I can confess to. Mm this crime mm-hmm. and yeah and escape any kind of judgment or be uncaring about any kind of judgment the thing about you know uxoricide in these kind of societies was that they, you know it's ambiguous we don't know for sure whether or not lucrezia was mm-hmm. murdered but we do know for sure that lucrezia's older sister isabella was suffocated by her husband and an, and a friend of his when she was age 35 and pre just previously before then Isabella and Lucrezia's youngest brother, who was called Pietro de' Medici, he strangled his wife with a dog leash. Um, and so these are men who, I mean, and, and I think with the kind of ta- both of these these murders of their women of their wives, um, 
happened, I think, with the tacit approval of their families. So these were men who, I mean, they were rulers, they were the lawmakers. So they were completely above any kind of um, comeback or any kind of uh, retribution. That They could do these things as long as they had the tacit approval of the people in charge. In this case, it was actually Isabella's brother who was now the Duke after their father Cosimo mm. died. So that really mm-hmm. struck, uh, really was appalling thing to read, that the idea that if your wife was, in Isabella's case, a bit too gregarious, shall we say, um, you could just do away with her and nothing would happen because you're a, you're a man in charge, you're wealthy, you have you know the permission of the ruling classes and you just get away with it. You can do what you like. I, I think you give us also a sense of that after Lucrezia has uh, been born off basically to the wilds of Tuscany and she begins to sense that she may be in danger. And she writes hmm. that letter to her mother and I have to tell you that reading that, I thought there is no way her mother is going to say, get out of there, get back here. I mean, I could you could almost see what was coming, right? That, but, but given what you've just said about with tacit approval of the family leaders, that this is just the way this unfolds, her mother, a woman of mm-hmm. her time, right, said, basically, you've got to bear it and make the best of it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I'd be, I don't know. I mean, to be honest, I, I would be very surprised if Lucrezia's parents were would have given permission for her murder. Well, no, but... Have done at all. Um, but I think... And I think probably... But her you know, unhappiness, if right? didn't, Her unhappiness, yes, certainly. And I think, yeah, I think her mother probably would have just advised her, this is just the way things are. You know, you, you, you do have an arranged marriage and you go to a different court, which is very different from the court in which you grew up. Um, and you just have to put up with it. You've just got to, you know, make your own way. I think. I suspect. Yeah. N- not as I wouldn't ever suggest that her parents were, uh, you know, oh, tacitly no, agreed no. to her murder. Far from it. I think they were. I think they were devastated, rightly so. But uh, yes, absolutely. I think you know. I think in in my novel. I mean, obviously, this is something I fictionalised all this. But Lucrezia writes to her mother saying she doesn't feel safe in the in the Ferrara court. And her mother's reply is, well, I'm sure you'll be fine. Just, you know, <laughs> grin and bear it, darling. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I'm just curious. There's so there's a lot of scholarly research about the Medici's and there's a lot of popular culture uh, stuff out there, about, mm. including, I don't know, some series. Maybe it's on Netflix or somewhere about the Medici's. So where did you go to uncover some... I don't know, new understanding of what the dynamic of the family was like. I mean, it was a mixture, really. And, of course, you know, the the writing of this book was completely um, bookended by the pandemic. So my my research for it was quite book-based, mm-hmm. you know, and I was housebound, mm-hmm. <laughs> as we all were, of course. You know, because if the world had been working normally, I would have gone, after I'd had the idea, I would have gone quite quickly to Florence and Ferrara to do some footwork and walk around the location. But as it was, you know, as we, as we all know, we were all uh, pretty much housebound. I think, I think what's always interested me about history and also particularly about the Renaissance is the idea that there is a, this surface version of it. You know, we're, we're so familiar with that world through the incredibly famous paintings and sculptures and architecture that are, of course, still very present in our world today. But I think what's always fascinated me as a, as a novelist certainly is what lies beneath the surface. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a sense that history is written by the rulers. It's written by the victors. And I think what I am 
what I wanted to think about and write about here as the people whose history is written in water, mm. the history that the people who necessarily aren't so obvious and aren't so present in, in the historical record. And I became very interested in the idea of these, you know, th th these incredibly famous paintings that we all know, you know, there isn't a painting probably more famous than um, Da Vinci's Mona Lisa. And, but it has been known that if you have X-ray the Mona Lisa painting, you can see that underneath her very famous expression. There are several other iterations of the expression that da Vinci tried out before he decided on the final one. And I love that as a metaphor for, the his for history and also particularly the Renaissance, that we see the surface, but underneath it, there are many other interpretations and hidden stories and hidden layers. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, the show where readers meet writers. We were talking to Maggie O'Farrell from Scotland, and we had some interference on the line, so we got her on a phone line. And you'll hear the difference as the interview continues. So one of the plots of the novel is the painting of this marriage portrait of Lucrezia, the choosing of the clothing, the positioning of the Duchess, the subject, and, and these just high expectations and demanding expectations of Alfonso the Duke. I, I assume you know that the portrait is actually hanging at the North Carolina Museum of Art, right? Hmm. Well, actually, that portrait is was painted um, under the auspices of Lucrezia's father. Really? So he, yeah, so he commissioned that portrait. And there are two versions of it. There's one in Florence, which was painted by or attributed to Angelo Bronzino, huh. and the one in North Carolina is by Alessandro Lori, who was one of Bronzino's apprentices oh, at one so point, but who also became a very famous painter in his own right. But it, 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 it's, it's a version of the same portrait. She's in exactly the same pose with exactly the same jewellery and dress. But it was painted a couple of months before she left Florence for Ferrara. So the marriage portrait, in a sense, the one that was commissioned by Alfonso after they were married to show off the beauty of his new judgments is, as far as I know, completely fictitious. But I just, I have a little sliver of hope that one day somebody might discover it in an attic somewhere or in a dusty room in the, in the Uffizi Gallery or somewhere and, and bring it out into the light. I'm keeping my fingers very tightly crossed. Um, I, I'm curious about what you see when you look into her face in the portrait. Well, it's funny because what interested me about the portrait, the very first time I saw it, was that often when you see these Renaissance uh, portraits of people like the Medici's, and there's a whole room in the Uffizi Gallery in Florence dedicated to Lucrezia's family, her, her parents and most of her siblings are there. And it's, it's, very, it's very much about surface. It's very much about the dress and the silks and the armor and the jewelry and the pomanders and the ruffs. Um, and the faces are often quite blank and expressionless, mm -hmm. and they're almost, it, it makes the... It makes the the subject seem at once almost tangibly present, but also quite distant because it's impossible to guess what they might be thinking. But Lucrezia, I think, on the other hand, her face is very expressive in this very famous portrait by Bronzino and Lori. Um, she looks she looks nervous. She looks quite apprehensive. She looks as though she has something she wants to say. And it was that quality about her which made me want to write this novel to imagine in a sense you know my book is my imagining of what she might have told us if she could speak i i noticed the the wariness even the the distrustful quality to her expression mm. do you think that's interpreting too much yeah or? i think she looks apprehensive she looks really you know she's well she's a 15 year old girl about to be sent away from the only home she's ever known and has been almost in a sense overprotected 
there and she's about to go into a court which is very different from her own. You know, the Florentine court, the Medici court, I think it was quite a party town in a way. There was a lot of gambling and gaming and parties and uh, acrobats and tumbling. And I think, in a sense, families like Alfonso's family, the, the Destes, slight, probably slightly looked down on the Medicis as a, as a little bit nouveau riche, a bit arrivist. You know, several you know, a generation or two back, the Medicis were merchants, mm. which of course was deeply shocking to people like Alfonso. And Alfonso's family, and by contrast, went right back to the Roman emperor. Um, they were, you know, a very, very old um, nobility in those times. So I think, in a sense, it would have been quite daunting for her to go from Florence um, to Ferrara, which was much more refined. You were much more likely of an evening to have a poetry recitation or theatre. Uh, Alfonso, uh, her husband, was a very early adopter of castrati music. Mm. So that's what he was very keen on as by way of entertainment, which, you know, the practice of which has its own implications, doesn't it, of (laughs) the way you treat young children, essentially, you know, to train them up. Yeah, horrendous. Um, So, yeah, I think it would have been very different. So, you know, whether or not Alfonso did murder her, she was clearly quite apprehensive before, I would have expected her to be quite apprehensive before she went off to to, to start her married life. You know, the other thing I noticed about that portrait is when you see it, it, there's a tight shot of it on the cover of your book, but when you look at it online, mm. you can see her hands, and they're she's yes. so young that her hands are dimpled. Mm. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I know. <laughs> it is heartbreaking. She's also wearing. I didn't know this when I first saw it, but she's wearing half Medici jewelry and half Deste jewelry, and the gold belt around her waist, which was called a cintura, um, was a present from her father-in-law, the, the old Duke of Ferrara. And there is a, a letter from, he was called Ercole, Ercole, being slightly grumpy about having to get it out of the the safe in which it was in. <laughs> really? So, I was just find the idea that he kind of very reluctantly gave her this bridal gift. But it's essentially a chain. Right. It's a gold chain, a jeweled chain that has been girdled around her waist. And it's the symbolism of it gives me, I kind of, you know, it raises the hairs on the back of my neck, this this essentially a chain that was reluctantly, grudgingly given to her by her father-in-law. Do you think those those centuras were heavy? I wondered if she felt the weight of that I imagine they were, when yeah. she was required to wear it. Yeah, I imagine they were very heavy. I mean, actually, everything would have been heavy. You see these dresses, which are, are completely stiffened, and they would have come in several different sections, so you would have had a would have been separate and there would have been many many underlayers and then you would have had this bodice that would have been tightly laced around your already pretty tiny rib cage at the age of 15 and then each in ornate and incredibly ballooning sleeve would have had to be laced onto the every your shoulder every single day i mean you know anyone who's ever been to say tuscany in july or august mm-hmm. <laughs> just the idea mm-hmm. of wearing oh. that incredible and also there'll be many underlayers you know because the um, the clothes underneath are the only parts that really ever got washed. So you'd have several smocks or, you know, um, camichottos underneath, and those would be washed, but these kind of incredibly stiff, heavy brocade silk um, would have been just laced onto you by an army of servants. And that's even before we get to the hair and the headdresses right. and, and the lace ruffs. <laughs> and, and all the jewellery that she's wearing, mm-hmm. what, some kind of 
I don't, not a tiara, but some kind of headdress, a jeweled it's headdress, kind of jeweled right? headdress, yeah. So her mother, Eleonora de Toledo, was from Spain, and I think she introduced this fashion to um, the Tuscan court of wearing this jeweled headband, and then the, your hair was um, pinned up in this kind of net. It was called a scufia. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently she was she was the kind of um, style icon for lots and lots of Florentine ladies. So as soon as Eleonora, who was young and very beautiful when she arrived in Florence to, mes- to marry Cosimo, as soon as she introduced the Spanish fashion, everybody in Florence immediately immediately wanted a, a jeweled headband and a scuffia. So nothing <laughs> changes really. Aren't you she glad was, you don't was have a, to... an influencer? Yes, that's right. I was going to say, aren't you glad you don't have to spend your days in a jeweled? <laughs> With know, your hair in a net. It gives me a headache just looking at it. <laughs> I get a kind of ache in my temples just looking at them. You said you have a lot of hair, Maggie. That Imagine <laughs> how, scraping that back every day oh. into a scuffia and then having yeah. to pull a gel, jeweled headband mm. around. Oh, right. Actually, what it makes me think of, my daughters have, like me, very, very thick curly hair. And the idea of having to force my daughters to wear one <laughs> gives me, me, it gives me even extra horrible idea. If I came near them with it, they would run away, rightly so. <laughs> I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's the show where readers meet writers. And I'm in conversation today with Maggie O'Farrell about her new novel, The Marriage Portrait. We've been hearing about the inspiration of Robert Browning's poem and the um, portraits of Lucrezia de' Medici um, that inspired Maggie's writing. I'm going to ask her to read an excerpt now from the novel. Uh, Maggie, will you set this up just a little bit uh, as to kind of where we are in the story um, mm. before we hear it? Yeah, so this is Lucrezia. She's approximately 10 at the time this um, incident happens, and her older sister, Maria, is engaged to Alfonso, the Duke of Ferrara. Um, Maria doesn't survive, unfortunately. It's not much of a spoiler, and Lucrezia is afterwards ushered in as the stand-in bride for Alfonso at the age of 13. Lucrezia met her future husband only once before their wedding, and he was at the time betrothed to her sister Maria. They passed by her on the highest battlement surrounding the bell tower, Maria and her and her fiancé, his head inclined towards Maria's nervous chatter. Lucrezia was perhaps ten at the time, with the flat and featureless body of a child, and she stood there holding her pet mouth cupped in her palm. The fiancé's eyes had left Maria, her flushed cheeks and trembling chin, and travelled over Lucrezia's face to the mouth, then back to her face, and his lips curved up in a wry smile. Maria's hand had been hooked into the green velvet of his sleeve, with her opposite hand pressed on top of it, as if she was afraid he might attempt an escape. Lucrezia had flattened herself against the rough stone of the wall as they approached, nestling the mouth close to her chest. The fiancé, who would one day be a duke and came from a very old family, one that could be traced back to the time of the Roman Empire, she had heard her father say more than once, paused, his boots slowing down, and he said, Who is this child? Maria's gaze swung towards Lucrezia, then away. One of my sisters, she said, and they sidestepped her, moving on past the columns to the opposite side of the tower, where, as Maria was telling him, they might see a view of the cupola. As he walked away, the fiancé, whose ancestors had defended the emperor, brushed his thumb along Lucrezia's cheek, and then, very quickly, so quickly that afterwards she was never sure if it had actually happened, He twitched his nose at her and pulled, she was sure of it, a face like a mouse, one sniffing at something it liked, cheese perhaps, or a tasty breadcrumb. 
Lucrezia laughed up there on the tower at the accuracy of this impression, at the unexpectedness of a revered man making such a face. How did he know so well the way mice could look? And for him to have done that without Maria seeing, just for her, Lucrezia. Delighted, she watched her sister and her husband-to-be walk away from her. Novelist Maggie O'Farrell reading from her new novel, The Marriage Portrait. It's such a wonderful scene to be placed where you placed it, too, because it gives us this sense that he wasn't one-dimensionally evil. You know, he. you get the sense that there was a humanity to him. He had all the demands and expectations on him as the as the leader of what his lands mm. um i i i want to i guess i want to know how you build a character with that kind of humanity knowing what you think you know about how he was and who he became and the things that he did i suppose i was trying to imagine how he would seem to a girl as young as Lucrezia, you know, the, I mean, he's almost twice her age at the point at which they get married. Mm. And she also has had the example of her parents' marriage. And her parents, really unusually for their time and class, her parents, Cosimo and Eleonora, actually were really in love with each other. And they were faithful to each other, which I think actually was even more unusual for for their time and class. And so the only example she would have seen of marriage was one of complete and utter mutual respect and deep love and um you know it slightly breaks my heart that 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 would have been her her vision of marriage and this is what happens when you're an adult and and you you are married off to a nobleman that you meet someone i mean cosimo respected eleanor so much that he he used to cede his rule to her in his absence, which I think ruffled a, a num- quite a lot of feathers in the Florentine courts because they suddenly had to answer to a woman. I mean, Eleanor was highly intelligent and extremely capable. She had no trouble at all ruling Tuscany when Cosimo was called away. Um, she was really involved in you know, the industry and the economics and, and the religious aspect of rule. She was, she was a very, very capable woman. But it just, it just gave me the idea that Lucrezia would have gone into her marriage, she would have gone to Ferrara with the expectation that this is this is the kind of relationship she could expect. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to write Alfonso as this monosemic, one-note, uh, moustache-twirling villain. <laughs> <laughs> right. in, in a sense, I wanted him to be more complicated. And, of course, he would have been extremely sophisticated and cultured, you know, like most other nobility at this time in, of that, in, the, in the world. He would have been fluent in several languages, uh, just as Lucrezia was, because Luke, Eleonora and Cosimo were again unusual that they educated their daughters alongside their sons. So Lucrezia and her sisters would have had the absolute best education that money could buy in 16th century Florence, which, of course, was no small thing. They would have been taught art by, you know, the best court artists possible. They would have learned music. They would have learned lots of languages. They would have been fluent in ancient Greek and all the antiquities and the classics. Um and Alfonso would have expected nothing less of a wife because he would he would have had exactly the similar a very similar education. So the idea that these people were you know extremely cultured and very refined, and Alfonso, as we know, was was very very fond of music. And um, you know, I, I didn't want to make him this kind of brutal, straightforward villain because I don't think he would have been. You know, in a right. sense, the idea. 
for me anyway, is that, I mean, you know, we know the term Renaissance man to mean one thing, but to me, a Renaissance man, certainly a ruler, would have been a very complicated person, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, uh, you know in, in one sense, we, we know the Renaissance to be this absolute apogee of beauty, and of course it was, but at the same time, what I realised when I was researching it, that in order for these artists of 16th century and 15th century, um, you know, to, to, to produce the work that we know so well, um, and we hold in such high regard even now, they they were often very, very poor. And in order for them to produce the work that we know, they would have had to have incredibly wealthy patrons like Cosimo and Eleonora and Alfonso. And in order for those patrons to be prosperous and successful, they had to be very ruthless and mm-hmm. often brutal rulers. They had to make brutal decisions and they had to be, you know, in order to, to bring prosperity and stability to their regions, they had to be quite ruthless as well as being very sophisticated. So there's this was this very interesting dichotomy to me about the Italian Renaissance. It's both beautiful and brutal at the same time. And for me, Alfonso embodies that in, in the character that he is. He's very complicated. He has many layers. He has many faces. He can turn from one to the other in, in the space of a moment, as Lucrezia realizes um, during the early months of her marriage. Uh, it, so it's interesting to hear you describe that because I got the sense that, and and you you scatter some seeds here, I guess about obviously we know it's essential that he produces an heir. Mm. You're 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 hinting at you know he's had this this life of being a man into his mid twenties and beyond, and he's never produced a child, and so mm. of course we conclude that that is his his issue, not hers. Mm. But that yeah. all of these all of these pressures and demands are building on this ruler who doesn't have anywhere to has no line of succession, and that is a huge problem in that era era isn't it yeah an enormous problem a bigger than you could possibly imagine yeah so he it's it's known that he never had a child out of wedlock in his early youth, which actually Cosimo did, his uh, Lucrezia's father, so it was not unusual. They were often called nephews, um, mm. but in fact they were illegitimate children produced or sometimes before a marriage or sometimes during a marriage, you know, to, just to um, your chosen wife. Um, so Alfonso never had that, and he... He, 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 was also, he was under huge pressure because he had to prove that he was up to the job of Duke, but more than that, the court of Ferrara at this time was quite tumultuous and quite split because just about the time that Lucrezia arrived in Ferrara to, to take up her, her role as Duchess, Alfonso's mother, René de France, who had been the previous Duchess, had been exiled from Ferrara by the Pope. She had been ordered to go back to France because it had been discovered that she had been practicing Protestantism. She had been um, receiving Protestant mass. So she mm-hmm. had been a Protestant from France and she had converted to Catholicism to marry Alfonso's father, but it was discovered that she was still consorting with known Protestants and and, and taking mass, and so she was ordered back to, to France, and she took with her, against Alfonso's wishes, his older sister. Um, and the problem facing Alfonso here is that he he had no heir. His mm-hmm. brother was a cardinal, so he wasn't going to produce children. And if his sister, the one who t- had gone back to France, had produced a child, she'd married a French nobleman, produced a child, that child could um, stake a claim to his duchy. So the, his duchy, the duchy of Ferrara, could potentially, unless Alfonso produced an heir, fall into the French hands, hands of the French, which would be a big problem. So 
So he was under a huge amount of time pressure to produce an heir, and that, of course, is where Lucretia came in. So Lucretia's mother, Eleonora, had produced 12 children in pretty sh- a very short space of time. She was known in Florence. Her nickname in Florence was La Fecundissima. So that's true. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely yeah. true. Wow. And uh, and I I would expect that was one of her one of the draws of him marrying Lucrezia. She came from this famously um, fertile mother. And also, I have to say, probably the dowry that Cosimo gave Alfonso was not uh, insignificant. It was the equivalent of it was it was two hundred thousand gold scudi, which I think I'm not sure what this is in U.S. dollars, but I'm told it's the equivalent of fifty million pounds sterling. <sighs> Gosh, yeah, wow. so that's the kind of uh, that's the amount of money that was exchanging hands. This gives you some oh, idea. Wow, wow. Uh, so, you you alluded to this earlier that you have uh, an interest in um, finding the stories that history ignores, the voices of the people who were what instrumental in in these eras, but that their story often doesn't get told. I, I, you know, I feel like. Um, I guess I'm trying to figure out how to put this. There's a I, I feel a sensibility that was there in Hamnet that is also here, which is a young woman that history has either ignored or told a different story about, who now has a, a time through you to tell her own story. Mm-hmm. Am I am I reaching here or is there some you know, common thread between the way these novels have have come to be. Yeah, I, I think there is. I think there is a, a, a commonality there because I think the, the engine behind writing Hamlet for me was the idea that not enough people knew about this boy. No, not enough people I always thought knew that Shakespeare had, had a son who had pretty much the same name as possibly his, his most famous play. You know, I always felt that little Hamlet had been relegated to a literary footnote in his in his father's story. Um, and in a sense, you know, writing about Lucrezia, I suppose it was, I, I felt that she'd been silenced. You know, the only glimpse we get of her now um, is, is, in the, is in the Robert Browning poem, and, and, she's, and she's just a portrait behind a curtain that only the Duke is allowed to pull back, and then he, he, and then he pulls the curtain across her when he's finished showing her off to people. The idea that he can control her smile, he pulls back the curtain and then he shuts it again. And I, so I suppose it, it, it's a similar thing. But I mean, in a way, in a strange way, actually, although... You know, Hamnet and Lucrezia lived only about 30 years apart, and mm-hmm. Lucrezia wow. was only five years older than Hamnet when he died. In a sense, actually, all the research I had done for Hamnet, it was a, was a kind of false friend, actually. I had to almost deliberately forget all about it, because I realized that the life of an 11-year-old boy in the middle of rural Warwickshire in 1580, and the life of a young 15-year-old duchess in 1560 in Ferrara was actually light years apart. You know, their their lives had no pretty much commonality or intersection at all. And even, you know, in the terms of what their future would have held or, you know, the places they lived, the food they ate, the clothes they wore, they were so so different. It was Mm. almost as if I was writing in a completely different (laughs) other, a, a completely other century. So in a way, I had to deliberately push all the knowledge I had about Shakespearean England <laughs> under a carpet while I focus my, my gaze on the Renaissance Italy. But the other thing you've done in Hamnet is brought Shakespeare's wife, commonly known as Anne, but you refer mm. to her, and, and you believe, I think, that her real name was Agnes, right? Out of the, out of the shadow and a lot of the mis, 
understanding about who she was and why she was in that mm. marriage and how Shakespeare felt about her. Is that yeah. right? Well, I think, I mean, you know, by contrast to Hamnet, his son, I think Hamnet has been forgotten about and people yes. have not given him his significance. But I think the way I felt about Mrs. Shakespeare is that she not so much has been forgotten about, but she's been completely vilified and demonized, mm-hmm. actually, for no good reason that I could see by biographers and historians and uh, scholars. You know, people have only ever, ever really told us one narrative about her, and that is that she was this older, strumpet peasant woman who seduced this boy genius and trapped him into marriage, and that he hated her, that he had to run away from London to get away from her. I mean, it's so baffling as to why that story has come about. I don't know why... Scholars and biographers have been so determined to give Shakespeare a kind of retrospective divorce because I think there's plenty of evidence, actually, that he really loved her, that they had a partnership. And yes, their marriage was unusual because obviously Shakespeare was away a lot of the time working in London. But actually, it's not that unusual if you look at the records of families living in Stratford um, and the the man going to London for work. I mean, it it actually happened quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And of course, people will always say, We'll bring out the, second, the famous second bed, bed behest in his will. But actually what people, those detractors never tell you is that the will itself is an incredibly dry document that doesn't show any sign of affection for anybody, let alone his wife. And um, it, it's, it's an interlineation, the second best bed thing. He's added it uh, right at the last minute, squeezed it in between two other lines. And mm. also what they never say is that by Jacobean law at the time, she was entitled to a third of his estate and to live on in the house until her death. So she would have been hugely wealthy, because by the time he died, Shakespeare was a multimillionaire, the equivalent of a multimillionaire. And the idea that she's this discarded wife thrown out on a pavement with just a bed to her name is preposterous. She she lived in a mansion, one of the largest houses in Stratford, and the second best bed would have been their marriage bed, because in those days, your best bed was situated in the parlour for guests. So he left her his marriage bed, and she also had a third of his estate and could stay on in the mansion until she died, which is exactly what she did. Mm. You know, I really love the rhythm of that novel, and I read somewhere that you had what you called your forsooth line that you didn't cross, (laughs) (laughs) and I got such a kick out of that. Explain what that means to you. So, I well, I was... was I had to make decision, you know, about dialogue and how people in Hamlet, and also actually people in the marriage portrait, would speak to each other. Yes, we're going to get to that in just a minute. Yeah, I didn't. I with Hamlet, I did not want to even think about or even attempt to write any kind of cod Shakespeare in dialogue. I mean, just the very idea that I would <laughs> anyone would presume to do that <laughs> so horrific. So like, I knew that was absolutely my line. So I did have a forsooth line. But, so um, and that was that I would never use any kind of fake Shakespearean expressions. Um, just because, you know, even the thought that makes me kind of shudder. So I had, <laughs> I, and I, but I, what I wanted to do was to never use a word that didn't mean the same thing now as it does then. So my final few drafts I had, had next to me on the desk my Oxford English Dictionary, and I was hmm. occasionally looking up words that sounded slightly anachronistic. For example, I once, I had written an early draft of Hamnet that something descended into a shambles, meaning chaos. Uh-huh. And I had to. I, w- I looked it up, and I realised that in the 16th century, the word shambles meant to dice up a carcass. It was a kind of butchering term. Huh. So that had to go. I had to change that, um, and that was and that was my that was my semantic rule that it had to mean the same thing as it did um, then. And that was the only. But that so that was I was between that and also like you say the Volsuth line. Did Did you have to do a similar thing when you were 
finalizing the language in the marriage portrait. Of course, it's different because it's in a different place and a bit of a yeah, different time. Absolutely. I mean, I did. I looked into the the history of languages. In, I mean, because you know, obviously this is Italy before Italy existed. At this point, the country we now know as Italy was fragmented into different city-states. Um, and every region had its own dialect and its own version of a language. And actually... Italian, as we know it, the modern language of Italian didn't actually exist. And um, a linguistic historian told me that Tuscan, the language they spoke in in Lucrezia's um, home region, was the language that most closely resembles modern Italian, that it's the one that morphed eventually into modern Italian. But the, the nobility, like Lucrezia and her family, would have spoke several languages. And, you know, Lucrezia would have spoken Spanish to her mother, or, you know, 16th century Spanish, and Tuscan mm-hmm. with her father, and it's quite possible that the servants surrounding them would have, sp- would have spoken a completely different dialect altogether, and, mm. and all, equally in Ferrara. Um, so it, it was a very complicated thing, and it wasn't, you know, and, and at the time, it was, I was thinking, well, you know, what were they speaking? <laughs> Probably in Ferrara, everybody sounded completely different than they did in Florence. So I had to make a decision, and I did. I, I lived for a while in Tuscany, quite near Florence. I lived in Lucca, but almost 20 years oh, ago. Oh, I know where that, yeah, I've been there. Yes, well, it's so beautiful, isn't it? So I it lived is. there for a while. When my son was really small, huh. we lived there, and so I learned Italian then. So I speak a little bit, and I was le- I would start my day by having an Italian lesson online. I mean, you know, just in that kind of app. So I was trying to get myself into the cadence of that speech, and I learned Latin at school, I mean, 100 years ago. So the idea, the kind of verb formation and the grammar of it is, is quite... Um, is quite deep in me. I can still recall that. So I wanted to write the dialogue with the knowledge of that kind of cadence in my head. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. I really appreciate you describing that the way you did. Does it, I mean, so in in the final draft, when you when you feel like you've caught the the cadence of this, but you're also, aren't you also looking for some too much modern... Uh, you know, too much of a modern tone. Mm. Um, how are you excising what just creeps into the way that we communicate today to make sure that this this is a, as authentic as it can be? Because so much of that is subconscious, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, you just have to go through any kind of anachronism that doesn't read ring. It doesn't ring right. I mean, actually, what I ended up doing with this book, which I've ne- never in my life done before as I read it aloud to myself um, ah. over the period of a couple of days, I did actually lose my voice, actually, at the end of it. Cause it's quite a long You've book. never done um, that before, huh? I've never done it before. As I wrote a children's book a couple of years ago, I, uh, well, I just, I've got my second book, children's book coming out, so write it. And that was quite an interesting exercise because I realized in order to do the final draft of that and to finesse it, because they are designed to be read aloud, really, the stories that I wrote for children, mm-hmm. and just reading them aloud, I found it incredible exercise in listening out for repeated words or things that don't trip nicely from the tongue and i think i'm i'm very hypersensitive to that because i have i had used to have a really bad stammer or i think maybe you call it a stutter in the states mm-hmm. um throughout my childhood and teens and you still have it a little bit as an adult everybody does if, if you've suffered it as a child so i'm very um hyper aware of uh, the rhythm of sentences i suppose perhaps more than people who haven't stammered or stuttered and so I just decided to do it. It just felt right. And so there, w- there was quite a lot of dialogue. But I think also the book, in a sense, is about interiors and exteriors. And I think Lucrezia is, 
she's confined pretty much all her life. And I said it's not coincidence that I wrote this book during lockdown, mm-hmm. but she's barely allowed out. So, and, and this is actually true, the children of the Medici's, it was too dangerous for them to leave the palazzo. Um, they had to stay inside, and Cosimo, Lucrezia's father, had so many assassination attempts on his life when he left the palazzo that he used to habitually wear chainmail underneath his clothing, even in the heat of the summer. Um, so it, it was too dangerous for the children to go anywhere, in a sense. And also when she would have gone to Ferrara, she would have been pretty much uh, kept inside the castello because it, it was, you know, it was not the dumb thing for a girl like a young duchess to, to go outside. And also, there's a, I, I wanted um, to. There's quite a lot of examples throughout the book that whenever Lucrezia speaks, speaks, she's often interrupted by other people. Yes. But, so a lot of the story goes on in her thoughts and feelings. Right. And her expression goes on inside her head. Um, so there's the kind of exterior and interior. So actually, externally, she doesn't speak much, but internally, she's talking a lot. I know you're going to be traveling to promote the book. You said you're off to Ireland and then mm. somewhere beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to the southwest. Uh, I'm going to Ireland next week, and then uh, then I'm coming to the states, which is ah, really exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. The first time, probably in what two or three years at least, because of the pandemic. Really? Since you've well, been here, the last time I was in the states was when my ten-year-old daughter learned to walk. So that's nine years ago. <laughs> Gosh, <laughs> you're going to be very welcomed and feted, Maggie. Um, I'm curious about whether what you're taking along to read as you travel, because aren't those moments for you to, you know, get outside of your head and get into somebody else's to do some reading, or don't you have time for that? Yeah, absolutely. What are you, what are you going to be reading? No, no, absolutely, I will. I mean, actually, what I'm very excited by, somebody sent me a proof of the new Elizabeth Strout book, Lucy by the Sea. Oh, boy. I'm really excited about it. And actually, two people in the house have already tried to steal it from my proof pile <laughs> in my study, and I have said, put that back! <laughs> That's not going anywhere with that. I'm not going anywhere without that. So I'm really excited about reading that. Yeah, and there's also um, lots of the Booker shortlist I haven't read yet, so I'm going to take a lot of those along, too. What's the best book you read this year so far? It would have to be, actually, one of the ones, it's actually shortlisted for the book, which I was so thrilled to see. It's Claire Keegan's Small Things Like These. Mm. Uh, a very short, very economic novel, but it, they, there's so much writing and artistry in the economy of it. I think she's the mistress of the white space on the page. Um, with her novels, there is so much that's left unsaid that's incredibly loud. She employs the... You know, the gap between what is expressed and what isn't expressed in a very, very beautiful way. And it's just an absolutely flawless novel. There's not a word out of place. And it's it's very, very affecting. And I, I as soon as I read it, I just turned the book over and began again. It's gone to the top of my to-be-read list today. Oh, good. I hope Thank you. Like you. Thank you so much for the conversation. Much, That's much appreciated. I'm sorry about all the... Uh, the glitches, technological glitches. <laughs> we worked our way through it, and you were a sport <laughs> we about did. it. So thank you. That's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.